Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject. We have guests on the show that are experts in their field. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from local municipal concerns to state and even national issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. My name is Rich Larson. And I'm Chris Chapp. Today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to discuss the rapidly changing and fragmented media environment, and especially how local news gets delivered to our communities. Our guest is journalist Tori Van Oot. Tori is a reporter and co-author of the Axios Twin Cities Newsletter, a novel platform for community coverage that is filling an important gap as local newsrooms continue to shrink. She covers state politics for the city of St. Paul and the state. Uh, Tori has worked all over the political journalism space, including as a reporter for the Star Tribune, working as an editor for NBC Universal in New York, and writing for Vice Media's Refinery29. We're excited to chat with Tori about the challenge of political journalism and the business of reporting. Tori Vanute, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down, actually. We, we love it when we have in-studio guests. We're excited to have you here. Um, and we are broadcasting, of course, from down, beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Um, Tori, before we really get into the meat and potatoes of the uh, the show, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what's your background? How, what inspired you to be a journalist? Sure. Yeah. The number one is, it will shock some people, but I am not a Minnesotan. <laughs> I am a Minnesotan now, but I did not grow up here in Minnesota. I grew up in Vermont and in a household where news was just like, what we lived and breathed. Mm-hmm. My dad would bring home, this is when, you know, there were newspapers still for any, there right. still are newspapers, but um, my dad would bring home, you know, we got the local paper in Vermont in the morning. My dad would bring home the Boston Globe, the New York Times every night um, and another regional paper usually. So just like news and journalism left. I was always a loved writing, curious child. And I decided at a pretty young age that I wanted to be a journalist, did my high school paper, all of that. Uh, and I was kind of adventurous. And so when I went to college, I had, it went the totally opposite direction from my small Vermont town to the University of Southern California. Nice. To study, yeah, it was great. Los <laughs> Angeles, it was so sunny, so fun, so big. Um, and I studied print journalism, mm-hmm. which is not uh, a degree that they offer anymore. Wow, <laughs> the really? Well, it's still journalism, but I don't right. think there's a print journalism uh, okay. specialty right. anymore. Um, but yeah, so I went out to the West Coast. I ended up staying there for my first couple of jobs, including uh, being a political reporter. I also left politics, so I would do like Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., uh, political journalism internships in college. It was just like I caught the bug. Um, and this was also in the 2000s. The 2008 election was a very mm-hmm. interesting and exciting election, especially on college campuses. Um, I ended up uh, getting one of my first jobs as a capital reporter in Sacramento. The California Capitol. And so that's really the Sacramento B. The Sacramento B. And I was a newsletter writer. I was a political newsletter writer of Capitol Alert and a blogger. Right. And we were doing it. It was actually a very digital first newsroom for the time at the Sacramento B. And so anyway, that got my that really instilled in me a love and appreciation of covering state government Mm, and the power and influence and importance of covering state political issues before as a college student, I didn't care at all about state political issues. I was all about (laughs) national. I have to go to Washington. I have to, you know, do the presidential campaign coverage. Um, And as Chris mentioned, you know, since, since then I've hopped around across the country, worked in a variety of mediums. My husband is a Minnesotan. So we ended up moving back here in 2017 his parents are in St. Louis Park, oh, um, so we knew we wanted to have a family here close to them. And I did some freelancing for national outlets. Worked, went back to my you know beginning of being a state capital bureau reporter mm-hmm. uh, for the Star Tribune here for a bit. And in 2021, we launched Axios Twin Cities. Fantastic. So there's my quick, <laughs> hopefully right. quick enough background. There is something about covering state politics, especially covering yes. the capital, that I don't think I don't know personally. You kind of have to jump into it to appreciate mm-hmm. what it does and what it means. Uh, I, 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 
I have a lot of the same background as you in that. Like, I grew up in a house full of news also. I always wanted to be a journalist, but I, it took me 25 years to get there after I got out of college. Um, but, like, covering state state uh, politics is maybe my favorite beat of, of, of the whole thing. It's it's I think it's fascinating the way it all works and the way it all comes together and how it can be so impactful immediately on mm-hmm. people, too. It is so impactful. I mean, the more local you get, the more impactful on day-to-day lives often policy is. And you just think about the legislative session this year sure. and everything you know they did this year that directly impacts people's lives. Um, also, state capitals have really become the incubators for national policy, yes. Yes. especially with so much gridlock in Washington. And the third real appeal, as a, from a reporter's point of view, is access. There are, you know, it. It, we ha- face. We can talk about this later. We face access problems here in Minnesota mm-hmm. to lawmakers and to public data, but it is nothing compared to the federal level, where there's a lot more barriers, there's a lot more gatekeeping, um, and here you find state legislators in particular, it's easier to catch someone and get their take or an interview or a lobbyist or that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. so you can really find great stories that that do truly impact people's lives on the state level. Right. Okay, I want to ask you about your philosophy as as a journalist. Um, how do you see the role of the media in American society? What sort of responsibility do you feel personally as 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 a journalist? And and what are your expectations of 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 Axios uh, and any other company you'd work for as far as like you know journalistic ethics, journalistic philosophy? Yeah, of course. I mean, the responsibility is a big one. I think at its core, I see my role or responsibility as um, helping people understand the world around them. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really core to what Axios does. We're all about telling you not just what the news is, but what the big picture is and why it matters. Um, we like to say we're trying to help people get smarter, faster about the biggest stories mm-hmm. shaping Ooh, like their that. lives and the future. Um and so, you know, especially in covering political journalism, I feel a real responsibility to make sure that the electorate and the voters feel informed, that they can clearly understand, you know, whether it's a policy happening at the state capitol, the proposals working through there, uh, where a candidate stands on an issue, kind of cutting through the noise and giving people, you know, unbiased and accurate information uh, especially in a world where there's so much misinformation out there and there's so much spin, um, misinformation, intentional and unintentional yeah. out there. Right. And so th- that's really at its core. Um, you know, Axios follows all of the basic tenets of journalistic ethics that mm. you would expect and that, that I would expect us to, you know, um, f- fairness, accuracy. We have a, a writing style called smart brevity that I think helps with that because it really just distills down to the most important information and kind of just the facts, a lot of data, a lot of data points. Um, and so I think that that has helped us a lot. Um, you know, fairness and transparency in working with sources mm-hmm. often. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so we, we, you know, we follow a lot of that and, and trust. The other thing that we're really doing is, is focused on building reader trust and rebuilding trust in news is something that we're trying to do at Axios and that I feel a responsibility to do as well. You know, we'll get to more of this later on in the conversation, but when you talk about fairness, mm-hmm. unbiased, trust uh so important um and and as a reader of yours uh, i th- i think you deliver but i do i do think that in this day and age um you know voters start from a, a point of distrust uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time and and you can just look at the polling numbers and see you know how how sort of reverence for for traditional journalism and media outlets has has really gone downhill. How do you how do you push back against that? Is it is it just sort of a one reader at a time kind of thing? Or, mm. I mean, reverence for all sort media, but all sorts all of institutions, institutions mm-hmm. is yeah. down, and that's what's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, people don't have a lot of trust, and one of yeah, that's a really great question, and it's something we think about a lot. I mean, one we like to let say that our work stands for itself, our work speaks for itself, mm-hmm. so. Um, read our work as a whole, and hopefully you will find that you think it's, you know, fair. Um, and hopefully we are, we have a pretty good track record for accuracy, occasional typo here or there. Um, but, but pretty good with that too. Um, and one of the things that we've found at Axios is that 
it's almost like we're we're text writers. We're writing a daily newsletter, but we're also almost like in an anchor or host role is how people see us. And you mm, think about mm-hmm. how people identify with or relate to the radio host or the local TV news anchor. Like they feel like they know them. And mm-hmm. so they feel like they trust them. And that's one of the things that we go for in, in our newsletters, trying to be a conversation between neighbors where, where people do feel like they know and trust us. And if you read our newsletter at the very bottom, we often say a little bit about what we're reading or what we're doing that weekend or a little mm-hmm. joke about our kids or mm-hmm. what the TV show we're watching. And that helps people connect with us. The other thing real quickly that we do is we have a policy of trying to respond to every single reader email we can wow. that's sent wow. in good faith. Now, the ex- the biggest exception is when we do contests, we do trivia contests, we get so many answers, we cannot respond right. to everybody to right. tell you whether you're right or wrong, which just would take up all day. But even people who are critical of us, um, we often write... If you write to me with a criticism about an article and I actually agree, maybe that wasn't the best word choice I had there, I will say that to you. And I will say, I, um, you know, that's, I wasn't intending it the way that you interpreted it, but good point. We could have used a different word or good point. We could have cited that thing. And, um, People respond really well. They res- they're like thank us all the time. Have you, have you ever gotten one of those and thought, oh boy, that person's right, and then gone back and like maybe changed the, uh, or once you publish something, is it just out yeah, there? Yeah, we wouldn't usually change a word like that, but that wouldn't go within our standards. But obviously, if somebody corrects something, if yep. somebody says that's inaccurate, yep. if somebody says you really missed this voice, or you know, I had a situation the other day where I had reached out to a. Uh, person about whether they were running for a statewide office they didn't get back to me in time mm-hmm. for the article they got back to me after the article we updated it to add mm-hmm. that they were not running because that's fair you know yeah. a lot of people are clicking on the article that was a so, great article by the way I oh, to thanks. <laughs> yeah, who's, who's not running sometimes right. that's the story not just who's running but who's not running for u.s senate um right now is a lot of people yeah, <laughs> there's a long list of everybody who's not running. is not running right. um but but yeah so you know we don't usually ch- unless it's a matter of real like this is inaccurate or unfair. We, we don't change it. Um, but we do keep things in mind moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, and so often somebody writes and sometimes it's even like you spelled like Phelan wrong. And that offends me as someone from St. Paul, because we're always ignored, uh, you know, then you respond and say, no, it really wasn't meaning to offend right. you by it was a typo. Right. Right. And they'll write back and say, Oh, I so appreciate hearing from someone. Yeah. Mm. I so yeah. appreciate, even if I disagree with what you wrote, like, I love the opportunity to have a dialogue with you and I love your newsletter. And it like totally changes the vibe of the exchange to yes. respond. Yeah. So we found that too, like that engagement is so important. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, so, so Axios um, really does provide one model to, to address. So, so today we want to talk about challenges in, uh, in journalism <laughs> and you, and you just, you just you started, start? started getting there. Um, let me start by throwing out, two of them um and uh, that are that are really broad and then we can you know maybe drill down um or you can you can tell me that that the two i've identified are are off base but but one of them is media fragmentation and the other i would i would consider political polarization and by fragmentation what we're really talking about is the move over the last 50 60 years from a few trusted networks and and this local climate that you described where everybody's getting a paper we have Mm -hmm. vibrant um radio options and so on and so forth to the state of affairs today, which is a lot of free content on the internet. Can't always trust it. Don't know where it comes from necessarily journalists who I'm, I'm using air quotes right now for, mm-hmm. for listeners uh, who, who haven't gone to, to uh, print journalism schools, <laughs> uh, local papers, closing their doors, uh, upstart media organizations with, with various degrees of training and so forth. Um, so it can be difficult for a media organization to, to stay in the business with all of that mm-hmm. competition, all of that fragmentation. Um, how has this type of, of pressure affected journalism just over the, the course of your career? Is, is media fragmentation, fragmentation kind of impacting your ability to, to do your job? In many ways, yes. It's been a very unstable industry. Um, there are some upsides. As you mentioned, there's a lot of diversity of media outlets, young new media outlets in the Twin Cities, that's really exciting. Hiring more journalists, more voices, more perspectives. You know, it's kind of like the more the more eyes on government, on other institutions, the better. At the same time, you know, yes, we've lost a lot of, of institutional knowledge, a lot of newspapers, a lot of local news outlets. Um, and this, 
yeah, proliferation of a range of different outlets and outlets and sites, all with different levels of standards, goals, uh, coverage, aims, all of that. It it really requires a high level of media literacy mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. as journalists and for the general public. Sure. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges mm-hmm. too. You know. And there's so much competition out there for eyeballs. It's not just, we're not just competing. Our um, publisher and founders like to say, we're not just competing with CNN and the Washington Post or here locally with the Star Tribune. We're competing with Tinder, with Netflix, (laughs) with anything that's on this phone for attention and eyeballs. And so it's, it sets up a really complicated dynamic where you need to be thorough, trusted, you know, fair, cautious. You also need to be, uh, you know, realistically gaining eyeballs in traffic. And you're competing with all of these different outlets that may or not may not be adhering to the same standards as you. Um, you're maybe being faced with the prospect of do I follow a story by an outlet that I don't really know where they got the information or who leaked it to them Mm -hmm. or how they reported this Mm -hmm. or whether it was vetted. Um, So there's just so much noise out there. And I think that that makes it hard for journalists. And I think it makes it really hard, even harder for the general public to figure out who they can trust is why. And it's probably contributing to some of the trust deficit issues we talked Mm -hmm. about. Uh, So it's, it's a, I don't know the answer to that challenge, but it's a challenge. It's an opportunity and a challenge. You know, and historically, I mean, and and this is, this has been true in different media environments, whether we're talking about, you know, the evolution of print Mm -hmm. journalism or television that oftentimes, you know, the response from different corporations in the, in the, in this competition has been sensationalism, Mm -hmm. you know, yellow journalism or, or let's, let's have some, some juicy tabloids or, it does seem like this day and age is qualitatively different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does make it really, really difficult to, to cut through the noise. And I'm sure it puts a, a pressure on you for, you know, Richard had mentioned the state reporting beat as being sort yeah. of like the, but it's not always maybe the most sexy. Oh um, no, so, it's not. <laughs> and so it becomes really tough. I think yeah. to, to give people the information that's going to affect their lives. Well, and we do, you know, the, I think one way we, do that is really by emphasizing the big picture and the why it matters. So every story with Axios has to kind of like hit that bar of like, mm-hmm. why does it matter? How does it impact your life? And we're going to tell you really, really clearly. We also try to do a little bit with the mix of the newsletter. We've give you your care, you know, your vegetables and your candy. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's always a mix of more serious and lighter things in the newsletter. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of the things you laid out are very, um, true and and challenges and the other thing with the fragmentation is it's um you know all of these sites that have started especially in the past 10 years have not all succeeded and the traffic (laughs) strategies i mean when i was at refinery 29 we were in the heyday of the we were riding that facebook wave of Mm -hmm. like a bunch of traffic that didn't really exist and then facebook you know because of the way facebook's algorithm was and facebook changed its algorithm and the numbers dropped and a lot of people ended up you know leaving the jobs or losing their jobs. And so it's been really unstable too for journalists and especially young journalists to have the sort of jobs where they can really dig into a beat and, and feel stable and grow as journalists when you're having, you know, layoffs and, Oh, well now we're going to do pivot to Instagram. Now we're going to pivot to Facebook. Now we're going to pivot to TikTok. Now we're going to pivot back to text. Well, now we're going to pivot to podcasts. Um, It's, it's tough. And let's be honest, the compensation for journalism isn't exactly uh, going to make a person uh, independently wealthy, too. So no. when you when you add in the uh, the uh, uh, the instability of kind of not yeah. knowing where you're going to be in six months, it's tough. Yeah, we've it's, lost a lot of journalists. Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of good talent out there that's yep. not in the uh, industry anymore. Yeah, there's a bunch of statistics about how how the PR industry has grown at such a clip as yeah. the journalism industry has shrunk in many places. Yeah, and well. so that's also gatekeep, right? Where's information coming from? Increasingly from corporations, from right. politicians without that sort of independent um, objective uh, go between of yep. the press. Yep. One of the truest political statements of my lifetime is follow the money. So there it is. I want to ask you um, basically the same question that that, that Chris did, um, but with respect to political uh, Mm -hmm. polarization. Um, You get fragmented media everywhere, and it's things are very very siloed. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I you know 
I've heard, I've heard it referred to as news you choose, mm-hmm. right? Um, how has this affected the way you report or in, in Axios, uh, report on, on, on state politics? It's hard because there are some readers and probably some politicians who just aren't going to trust us or yep. want to talk mm-hmm. with us. who are going to yeah. question everything we write because they feel like it's from a political lens. That's not from their ideology, their vantage point. And I think it's important to note, um, you hear a lot about this often with districts of media or, um, kind of just, uh, brushing off stories from the Republican side, especially with the way president, former president Trump has often talked about the media, but we see it on the left too, mm-hmm. uh, including in Minneapolis. And so, um, you're kind of, you're starting, yeah, you're starting at a disadvantage yep. with people who are going to distrust you. Um, how it affects my job is mostly trying to be as accurate and open-minded and fair as I can. I am, I always try to just talk to as many people on both sides of the aisle as possible. And I do find that that human connection can help maybe like offset some of the, that starting point disadvantage you might have with trust from somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are people who will always disagree with a story, right? Who don't accept the premise of, uh, of a story. And that's just kind of, part of the reality of the world we're living in. And I guess on that front, we just have to stand by our journalism, you know, not get too distracted and stick with what is, what is the story for our readers? What is our story? Did we report this fairly? Uh, Is this accurate information for our readers? And as long as we can trust that, we just have to trust that we're doing our jobs. Right. Well, and that's, that can be the hardest thing in the world. Sometimes (laughs) just it, 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 reporters, have to have thick skin, mm-hmm. no no yep. question about it. But man, you, every now and then, someone will send something that'll just <laughs> I, does this happen? To you? I mean, it just wedges itself in there, and then uh, just oh, it, it's tough. Yeah, it's mostly. And one thing that I love about Axios as a company to work for is one of our like internal, I guess, like tenants or, or expectations is assume positive intent. Yeah, and I think it's a really great thing for a workplace. <laughs> so it really cuts down on the amount of workplace content conflict especially when you're all operating on slack um to assume positive intent to start from that place and we do have a lot of readers who don't do that and so sometimes that is a little disheartening when Mm -hmm. you have worked really hard in a story and somebody's coming at you with just like assuming from the get-go that you meant harm by what you did or that you were negligent when you weren't because they misread something or an agenda or you have an agenda Mm -hmm. and my only agenda is to serve the public right information like that is that is my agenda right my agenda is to hold the powerful accountable to explain to people what is happening in government so that they can better understand their lives like yeah. that is what and 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 be informed when they go to vote um that is that's my agenda yes well you know you mentioned earlier a decline in trust across all types of institutions mm-hmm. be they you know religion, um, mm-hmm. police, uh, the oh, medical, police co- the sure. medical community. I mean, there's, there's some, and, and I think that, that mantra of just sort of assuming, assuming good intent there. And, and of course there's, there are, there are people with agendas mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, but, uh, but there's also a lot of really like good professionals who are experts in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, another thing that I wanted to bring up, especially cause we're, we're in a small town here and we, we have, a great local radio station uh, and and, uh, <laughs> Yay, local uh, news. And, and local newspaper, among other things. But there, there's a lot of communities called news deserts oftentimes yep. uh, with little to lo- uh, no local news coverage. A lot of reasons for this, um, just declining ad revenue. You've seen hedge funds go in and buy mm-hmm. up and gut uh, small papers. Um, could you talk? And we actually, we were talking earlier um, before we went on the air about Axios and, and the challenge of, of doing coverage in greater Minnesota um, with, a, with a relatively small staff. Can you talk a little bit about uh, small communities and the work you're trying to do and, and some of the challenges there? Yeah, I just I find it so disheartening that news deserts and the decline of local news, especially outside of bigger urban centers. Um, you know, our main focus is the Twin Cities and the Twin Cities Metro. We try to cover news in the suburbs and beyond. We try to cover greater Minnesota stories when we can connect it back to bigger trends. A good example is um, when Hormel announced that it was building a child care center 
It's mm-hmm. building it like subsidizing a child care center in town because of the child care access crisis mm-hmm. and because they they couldn't have a workforce without good child care. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of story we'll go into greater Minnesota to do. Um, but the decline of local news outside of the Twin Cities makes it harder for do the, to do the aggregation part of our job. Right. We only have three reporters on our team and we're putting out and we have some help from some more centralized national teams. I can talk about that later if you want. But we're putting out eight editions a day and each edition has four to six kind of what we call newsletter cards or stories. They're short. The whole newsletter takes you four minutes or less to read, but that still takes a lot of work and reporting. So we do link out to other outlets. Well, when, you know, the radio station X or newspaper Y closes their bureau in St. Cloud or a little paper um, up in international falls closes Mm -hmm. or whatever, that's fewer journalists for us to like read and to link to, to share to our uh, share with our reporters. So it's really challenging and we're really spread thin in terms of what we're able to report. Not like, again, it goes back to that bar. What really matters? What, what helps our readers? Like what do our readers need to know? Um, you know, there are some interesting organizations and nonprofits and such working on different models for local news in smaller areas, you know, rural, more areas. I think about some of the sites in Vermont, for example, that have been able to do pretty well. There's nonprofit, there's for-profit. I mean, I think the hope of Axios is, and our founders is that if we, we are not a nonprofit, we are a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. We are actually owned by Cox, which is a company that has a long history in media. They bought us last year. And our founders goals is to, um, we're in 30 cities now. We started in four in 2021. And we want to get to as many cities as we can. Mm-hmm. And we want to eventually potentially help fill some more of news desert type communities. Goal number one is we got to figure out the revenue model for right. the 30 we have in cities like the Twin Cities, which are perfect cities for something like Axios and mm-hmm. our, our the revenue side of our business. You know, um, engaged, highly educated, civically interested population, many Fortune 500 companies, you know, large city um, so I think the long-term hope is that if we can figure out the model here and in Tampa and in Boston and some DC and some of the other places we are, that we can grow this model elsewhere. Right. Um, nobody's quite figured it out yet, not just us for our <laughs> model, but just in general, how to sustain local news long-term. Um, but that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but that's what we're doing right now. Right. For our listeners, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today is Christopher Chapp. And our guest today is journalist Tori Van Oot of Axios Twin Cities. We are talking about uh, new media, new models of media. Okay, so just sort of building off of kind of what you were talking about, Tori. One of the reasons we ask you down here is is because um, Axios... And, and, and the Axios newsletter in particular is really a different way of reaching out to an audience. Um, so tell us, if you would, uh, you, you were talking a little bit about Axios, like uh, the, the mission on the business side of things. But the mission for, what's the, the mission for the news website and the, the role of the Axios newsletter? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, it's really help you get smarter faster about the biggest stories um, shaping where you live. And not just not just like news like the mayor's budget but it's also another colleague of mine likes to say like help you get help you like live work mm-hmm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh smarter faster since we do do lifestyle too um we want to both inform and entertain and we want to strike that um build that trust mm-hmm. and have that like conversation between neighbors this is local news for locals by locals um feel um, and it that that levels up to Axios as a whole, you know, as a national organization, really politics and business are two of our bread and butter subjects. We have all these different national newsletters, everything from Congress to outer space. Um, but we're really trying to um, cut through the noise mm-hmm. and not waste readers times. Right. And that's what our founders really set out to do. Um, you know, not waste people's times with a bunch of BS and yeah. just tell them what they need to know to be, you know, to feel like one of the smartest people in the room, right. wherever they are. Right. The newsletter is 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 great in that it's. I mean, you really you go straight with the journalistic period uh, pyramid, and you go you like literally label why is this important? One big. What thing. is yeah. this? Right. Right. But and and you you've got a couple of sentences for yeah. for everything. I just 
as a journalist, do you ever get frustrated that you've only got X amount of mm-hmm. space to do it and that you've got, you know, you've got two sentences to write about <laughs> Kendall Qualls is not going to run for Senate, yeah. but you've got two paragraphs to say about it. Does that ever, I mean, is that? It is so hard. <laughs> it's the hardest thing about this job. What's the quote about like brevity? Um, I was going to write you a shorter letter. Oh, someday. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson. I, 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 I turned, in the, uh, turned yeah. in the Declaration of Independence and said, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to write something shorter. Yes, yes, yes. 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 So it's, it's, brevity is so difficult. And mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about um, trust, accuracy, unbiased. I mean, people read into words. Words are loaded. So you have yes. to be really mm-hmm. think about your words yes. even more when you're, when you're um, writing uh, briefly. But it, it's also freeing in some ways. Like yeah. it allows us to cover a lot of ground. It allows us to be really sharp with our writing and cut a lot of bloat. Like so much news today. It's like, oh, every newspaper, you've got to get have the the three line PR person mm-hmm. crafted statement from this guy and then the four line PR person crafted statement from this person. Mm-hmm. We can kind of like cut through a lot of that yeah. noise and just summarize and say like, here's what you need to know. Or here's right. where people stand. Um, so that's helpful, but it's hard. It is definitely uh, a skill we are honing over time still to write your brief. And like I said, like our lead story is less than 300 words or one big thing every day. Our, what you mentioned, the little like the labels, we call those axioms. Oh, that's <laughs> cute. So it's, you know, how it happened, why it mattered, the bottom line, what they're saying, you know, that kind of helps us structure it. But um, there's a lot of times where my colleague, Nick Halter, who's from the Business Journal and mm-hmm. I are just like, I know how I would write this story right? for a Sunday story for the Star sure, Tribune. Right. And I don't know how to do it for Axios. <laughs> and we've got good editors who help us with that. But our editors also, they've got that red pen, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, the newsletter is a lot more bloated when we turn it in. Let me tell you, <laughs> we're not always smart brevity on our own. So well, it's, go ahead. I was going to say, somebody that teaches college students, yes. uh, having that short to the point, yes. uh, it. it the the uh, the readers of tomorrow have that kind of attention span, yeah. so you need they to do. you need to shorten it and and cut through the cut through the noise. Well, and we find that our reader we have about one hundred ten thousand subscribers today after launching two and a half years ago, and so we find it's a huge mix of people. Some people only rely on us for news, right? Some people are like, this is what I read because I have a short attention span mm-hmm. and it gets me up to date in three minutes. We also have a section of readers who read everything, read yes. the Star Tribune, <laughs> subscribe to Hot Dish at the Star Tribune, Patrick Kulikin's political newsletter at mm-hmm. um, at the Reformer, NPR politics, you know, they, they read everything, but they still appreciate what we do because they've ingested so much that right. we distill it down, that it's like, oh, okay. And there's value in that. Right. When we're, whether we're doing our original reporting or whether it's something that we've aggregated, there's value in helping people just, they've taken in so much yeah. every day yeah. that that big picture really helps people frame things. Do you ever, so you, when you, nice, it's nice that you've got colleagues that you can talk some of this through because yes, like, I, I, that's, that would be me. Like I'd yeah. be, I, I'd be like, okay, I've got this thing. I've got to, I just, I just have to talk about this for a second and figure out yeah. where is the point that I'm trying to get to. I mean, that's, that's nice that you guys have that collaborative uh, spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do. How do, how do folks sign up for the newsletter? Uh, they can go to uh, just Google Axios Twin Cities or axios.com slash twin dash cities. Um, and either way, and it's a free daily newsletter. Uh, we actually have eight editions a week because we send you a Thursday roundup in the afternoon of things to do this weekend across the metro. But uh, yes, six, and it'll land in your inbox at 6.30 a.m. every morning. So you said it's free, mm-hmm. but you also said that you make money. So I do. So <laughs> I do. I don't know how I'd pay for daycare if I did it. It is a commercial enterprise. Um, so it how is. how um, how have you been able to figure that out, or how has Axios been able to figure out that that part of the business model in this challenging environment? Yeah, the uh, way above my pay grade, thank goodness. But the core of our business model um, for the newsletters is the in advertising newsletter and part of our sell to advertisers or a pitch to advertisers is that we really the axios brand really reaches like a segment of what we call like smart professionals Mm -hmm. decision makers policy makers people in the c-suite people in the capital people in the u.s capital and those are the types of eyeballs in addition to the general public and you know our large subscriber list that advertisers hopefully want to um 
reach. So, you know, it's, I don't know the numbers because again, there's like a firewall, but it's not inexpensive to advertise in our newsletter. So mm-hmm. that's number one. These are not like our, adver- our newsletter advertisements are not the like kind of cheap uh, click online to lose sure. 40 right. pounds, right. <laughs> you right. know, overnight with this trick advertisements. But we are diversifying our revenue. I mean, both as a company, there's things like events, podcasts, studio business. At one point, we had a deal with HBO for an HBO show. There's very famous memes of my former colleague, Jonathan Swan, now at the New York Times from his interview with President, former then President Trump, with the kind of like looking confused face, Jonathan, uh, that was, went around for a while. But um, um, so we've got a, a couple of different streams nationally, locally. Again, we do events. We have a membership program, which is where folks who even though our newsletter is free, can pay to get some behind-the-scenes coverage and perks and just, like, support our journalism. We have a jobs board. We have an events board. um, We do have ads on our website. So it's a mix of of advertising opportunities that we have. Um, And, you know, we're lucky to have really, like, owners who believe in the business. Mm -hmm. That is not like a hedge fund that's trying to cut, cut, cut. Um, So that helps, too. But those are, the, you know, that's the main way. And, and we're trying to replicate this across the country. You know, our newsletters have both sometimes local organizations that advertise. Sometimes there's a national advertiser that wants to advertise in 5, 10, 15 cities all at once. Um, so, yeah, the hope is that it can, having a network of so many local newsletters can both serve up, you know, revenue from the local, but also national down into this, you know, reach people all across the country, reach over a million people all across all across the country. Yeah. Do you guys have an idea? I mean, you, you were saying that, you know, your Axios reaches the decision makers. Uh-huh. But do you guys have an idea of who your readers are? I mean, you, are, are, are your metrics coming back saying our readers are between 18 and 34? And when, that, when you get some of that information, do you ever tailor what you're covering for mm. that age group or whatever i wish we had better age group data i mean that's the one thing that's hard to get we can get that for the website i think more people Mm -hmm. again above my pay grade but Mm -hmm. harder with emails to get that um there is our different ways that our really talented colleagues on um you know the client experience side can sort out and know sort of who are what kind of decision makers we're reaching um I, I, yeah, I wish we had more age demographics. I think that's the biggest challenge is like yeah. capturing those young yeah. news consumers, both from a business perspective and from a journalism perspective. I mean, young people have, they're like the great whale <laughs> right? that every news outlet <laughs> wants to figure out how to get those young people to like start that news habit, yeah. right. start that news habit. So, you know, anecdotally, we just know it's a range. It's mm-hmm. from based on emails even alone mm-hmm. you know it's people in the suburbs it's people in the cities it's people who are liberal it's people who are conservative it's just people who are retired it's state legislators and policy aides and people who work at target or for the timberwolves you know right. it, it's um it's a real it seems to be a real mix uh, anyways it, i don't know that it would really we're not like a trade publication, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we're not an insider publication like Politico you right. know, for politics. And right. so it is, we have to kind of straddle that line of being general interest enough for the general public and informing folks across, again, cities, suburbs, different places, um, and having content that's going to appeal to the like movers and shakers and be new and different to them. So that's always a balance, but I don't know that anything else like shifts our coverage just as a comment it's really actually great to hear you say you don't really know because because as as journalists you want you you talked about there's a firewall between you and and there's church and state right i mean there's the business side of things there's the journalistic side of things as a journalist i would think i would what i want to read are the people who are just looking to cover a story and Mm -hmm. give me what I need to know about that story and not trying to tailor it to my age group or to, to my, yeah. uh, to, 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 to my race or whatever. And it's, yeah. what are people talking about? And we kind of have our finger on the pulse, you know? So we know, mm-hmm. and even things like when you see a weather story, it's like, yeah, everybody's talking about how freaking hot it it's is hot. this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's going to be our one big thing today. It's yep. like here, and here's some like statistics on how this week's heat we have compared to the past. Cause it's going to arm you to have something to talk about at the water cooler on Slack or mm-hmm. at the bar. Um, but yeah, one of our founders, Mike Allen likes to say something along the lines of like, 
what you want is your newsletter and your lead story, something in your newsletter to be the story that when you walk into a party yeah. with a hundred people at this party or sure. 50 people at this party, 80% of people in this room are talking about this story. Like it's mm-hmm. something that you, the bar stool test, the, the coffee test, like what would you turn to someone and say, Hey, did you hear this? Right. Um, that's what we're trying to kind of strive for. Cause that reaches both Yeah. that, that the movers and shakers and the everyday public, which is what you need for a successful advertising strategy. I think. Yeah. You have one, you know, really interesting approach here, but there's there's actually a lot of other, you know, kind of upstart publications in the mm-hmm. cities that have have tried to fill this this news hole in this changing environment. Um, what impresses you? Where do you think the future is? Are there are there colleagues or yeah. or, or publications you wanna you could you could call out? I mean, so much impresses me. I still have to give props to like the legacy. You know, the oh, Star course. Tribune yeah. is still doing some of the best journalism in town. Mm-hmm. Some of the TV stations and NPR as well. Just like it is so important to have the staff levels that they do yeah. mm-hmm. to be covering. I cannot be at the St. Paul City Council every week. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I cannot be in every committee hearing. And and both of those Star Tribune and NPR both have several people at the Capitol still. And and so that is so important. Um, I think Sahan Journal has been really, really yeah. awesome to see them grow. They cover a lot from more diverse perspectives, immigrant perspectives, you know, news, news shaping the Twin Cities. And I think it's been so cool to see not only the stories that their reporters have been able to surface and focus on that maybe other outlets aren't covering, um, uh, but they've also just done a lot to reach the communities yeah. they're covering you know, content in different languages, like explainers in different languages. Like Mm. that's so cool. Um, I think the Minnesota reformer has been doing some really uh, interesting work, especially around, um, you know, breaking news at the, at the Capitol and using public data requests, um, coverage of Minneapolis police department. Um, they've got some really dogged reporters there. And I also think on the hyper-local level, there's a site, um, Southwest Voices, which kind of yeah. succeeded the Southwest Journal. Yes. And they're doing some really interesting kind of, com- their newsletter as well, community building, and and hy- trying to figure out, can you do hyper-local coverage still? Because that's been another challenge in journalism. <laughs> you know, people want to know... People want to know what's going to go into that vacant storefront two doors down. Right. Why isn't the pothole on my street fixed? Right. That's really hard for us, even us, but also like the Star Tribune to mm-hmm. cover. Get that micro in their coverage. That is my job. Yeah. I have to tell you, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love talking about why that pothole didn't yeah. get fixed. I, I mean, love it. I mean, it's what people want to yeah. know. It's yeah. really what people want to know. But um but there's that's the economic model is really tough there. Tell me about because it. Because only the person who lives next to that pothole wants to pay for that. Right. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so those are just a couple of them. But there's just some. Yeah. And the, I think the Star Tribune also, I have to disclose, full disclosure, my husband works there still. So I'm a little biased towards them. But um, yeah, the other thing about being a fair journalist is acknowledging your biases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or conflicts. But um, their new publisher, I think, just has Steve Grove has a lot of it seems has a lot of um energy and kind of looking to the future and what the star tribune in five or ten years is going to look like versus what the star tribune five or ten years ago looked like steve grove is a uh, uh native north he's a, he is a native north fielder yeah. that's true yeah. yeah and i love that you're you're shouting out the the legacy organizations because they play a huge role yeah yeah you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Chris Chap. My co-host is Rich Larson, and our guest today is Tori Van Oot. And we are discussing the changing media landscape. Um, I want to turn now, it's called Public Policy This Week, mm-hmm. so I want to turn a little bit to, to public policy, um, which, which affects the way journalists do their jobs um, in, in more ways than people realized. Um, earlier you mentioned access. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if we could go back to that because yeah. there actually is variation from state to state in, in the, in the amount of access journalists are allowed, um, into, you know, um, even into like a, a legislative chamber, for example, mm-hmm. can you, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, this has been a challenge, especially throughout the pandemic. There's been some different like shifts when less fewer lawmakers are in person at a committee hearing fewer lawmakers on the floor it's harder to talk to them. So that's one shift that's happened that's besides some of the other, like more, I guess, systemic changes and how politicians and the press interact. Um, 
what I have found in covering different states is that, you know, Minnesota likes to pat ourselves on the back for uh, civic engagement and being enlightened, but there is not a lot of sunshine <laughs> in Minnesota, comparatively, just <laughs> objectively speaking. Um, everything from lobbying disclosures to financial disclosures for lawmakers to conflict of interest. Um, the legislature, of course, has, um, you know, exempted itself from the Data Practices Act. So, <laughs> you know, we don't really know what they're doing <laughs> besides what they're saying. Um, you know, the, there's been different uh, tension between the governor's office and the press over times about mm. access, about public data, about his calendars. Um you know, a lot of there's, you know, because court precedents or opinion precedents and pra the current interpretation of the Data Practices Act is that mayors and such do not have to release their calendars, you know, and that's those are all important things for people to mm -hmm. be able to understand their their communities. So, you know, uh, I think that there's data access can be difficult. Um, I do find that there's more access on the local level and state level to officials. Um you know, Governor Walz does do some sort of press availability most weeks, but he's not doing press conferences nope. where we have 45 nope. minutes to ask him nope. whatever we want mm. and ask follow-up questions when his answers don't make a lot of sense, which not, <laughs> I'm not dinging him. It's just like sometimes someone says something and you're like, wait, what? And yeah. then the press conference is over. And so um, it's, a ch it's a challenge. And there yeah. were some access issues at the legislature this spring, you know, or some uh, tensions between the press and the House DFL, over treatment of a reporter who kind of pushed back with mm -hmm. questions being mm -hmm. um, cut off at a press conference. And so uh, it is not a utopia <laughs> yeah. press access here for politics. Well, and so much of it goes, when you talk about press conferences, for example, yeah. so much of it goes back to media fragmentation. There's yeah. not great incentive for a politician to, you know, be vulnerable, quote unquote, to, to uh, a journalist question when they're not even going to be reaching that many people, they could have complete control over their message through a Facebook post um, or something yep. like that. Complete or, control, Facebook post, uh, drone video in the case of Governor Walls touting everything Democrats did at the Capitol this year. Um, so, you know, there is this growing belief, I think, among politicians that it's a lot safer and more effective to just be their own microphone instead of going mm -hmm. through the press. And it's really... It's a challenge. Uh, and we find this even lower down, too. Like uh, Patrick Coolican was just writing about this in the Reformer speaker last week about the growing trend of um, state agencies not putting people on the phone for interviews and kind of going really? to get statements mm, or going to get uh, information instead. And that it also elongates the reporting process. It makes it harder to turn a story when you're kind of have this gopher right. game or telephone game. And I was just going through something with a flack in the city of Minneapolis or press person yesterday where they put a, a statistic in a press release that didn't match up with the monthly data that we had and and it took a day to get the answer and it was like well you know that statistic actually includes all of these other things that weren't in mentioned in the press release so it's really like increasingly i think state Government, government, and politicians want it to be a one-way street. Yes, mm -hmm. one-way street of information, yes. and that makes it really hard for us to fulfill our duty of like fact-checking, right, yeah. and making sure that po people actually understand what's happening and why. And we've had politicians, you know, the lawmakers, uh, uh, sorry, journalists had a lot of trouble getting access to the tax chair, um, one of the tax chairs in the house this session. She didn't really like talking to the press. It seemed or or wasn't really what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. It made it really, really difficult for us in the moment to explain what was happening with tax policy and why. Yeah. To her credit, she did eventually do more interviews with us. So I want to give her credit for that. Um, but as the the package was coming together, I mean, tax policy impacts people's lives. And we're trying to understand what's changing, why, where they stand, and it made it a lot harder. Do you see a difference between, say, someone who's newly elected versus someone who has been there for a while as far as access goes? Do they, do they get, do they, do, I mean, because I can see, I've seen it go both ways, right? There, we have a, we have a, a locally elected state official who mm -hmm. will not, who is in their very first term in the, uh, uh, in the uh, legislature, who will not talk to me. Right. Uh, because he wants to control whatever, wants to control everything. I've seen that, but I've also seen uh, veteran politicians who were very open at first. Mm -hmm. 
and then maybe get closed off later on or they get feel like they get burned by something or whatever what what has your experience been with that oh that's a great question i mean i do think once you climb into higher and higher office like obviously it's harder to get an unfettered interview especially with the president Mm. of the united states versus the president of (laughs) the city council in minneapolis but i think it's really it so much varies based on person and personality and press strategy because you're right there are some there are some freshman lawmakers who will talk your ear off yes text your ear off yes there are some 30-year lawmakers who will always pick up a phone call and some city council members and some people will pick up a call there are people who are new and old who won't do that so i think it just varies Right. And it's, you know, the, th- the other thing in my experience is that it's pretty easy, frankly, to get an interview with almost anybody as long as you're wanting to talk about something that they want yes. to talk about. Yes. Like, right. You want to talk to Governor Walls about child care, he'll give you 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. But uh, I, 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 I got uh, Senator Klobuchar on the radio to talk about AM radio. Yep. Right? You know, she, she's she all about that. about that. But yeah. uh, I was. Absolutely, man. You these are your parameters, and you if you oh, that's interesting. if you go outside of these parameters, the interview will be over. You wow, know, that's uh, that's that's how it goes now. You know, that's yeah. We generally like will not agree. It's harder when you're doing radio because you yeah. have people on there. We generally will not agree to things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are certain like courtesy things. Like generally, you don't go. You know, um, a lot of times, like family information about minor children and stuff, unless it's in the public interest. Like you're not going to go there, but, but um, yeah, we generally are pretty firm about like, you don't get to control the interview. Mm -hmm. And I always tell, I always tell press aides at the Capitol, especially you, I cannot force them to answer my question, Mm -hmm. but you need to give me the opportunity to ask it. So if they want to say, I'm not going to answer that. I don't have anything to add. I can't say that right now. That's fine. That's their prerogative. I can't like put words in your mouth, but you need to have the opportunity to ask it. Like yep. you need you need to do that because it's our job to ask questions on behalf of the public. One other policy area just mm-hmm. just uh, uh, that I wanted to ask about is sort of what happens to your content when you write it. We live in this world now where oh. somebody can take your you know something you've written and it can it can you know go up on any number of other digital platforms. And, and I, I noticed uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar, we just mentioned, wrote a bill, co-authored a bill last year called Journalism Competition Preservation Act, which aspires to make it easier for local papers to, for example, negotiate fees from Google and the like for mm-hmm. their content. Um, I don't expect you to take a stance on this particular bill, but wonder if you could just kind of reflect on this more generally. Is it is that something that you worry about at all, or or with the Axios newsletters, it's something that's that's not as much of a problem? Well, I think the great thing about newsletters is they go direct to the person. Sure. And I think you're seeing a lot of content creators, even outside of journalism, realize that. And like, why am I giving all my intellectual property and basing my mm-hmm. business or brand on like? Instagram, Facebook, whoever, like what, whose algorithm could change right. any day. Or right. it, X, Twitter, X. <laughs> a lot of news organizations put a lot of time and energy into building Twitter following, even though really the traffic is pretty small in the grand scheme of things for news organizations off of Twitter and just percentages. But, um, but yeah, so I think that having a newsletter helps. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of discussion of this over how like Facebook and some, and Google and some of these other big organizations have, um, gotten a lot of just like digital ad revenue in general a lot of traffic in general there's a lot of questions about ai and Mm -hmm. how that i mean right now search engine traffic for news organizations including axios is very big share of our traffic Mm -hmm. you know you do a lot of optimization to make sure your link and stuff has the right words so that people are finding your content and you have authority on google well if people start going to like chat gpt to ask a question right and it's scrolling and reading everything we've done and spitting out an answer without linking to our coverage, right. mm-hmm. maybe getting it right, maybe getting it wrong in context. That's, and also Chappie GPT is like, you know, there could be more Axios copycats, that sort of stuff. So there, it's a, it's a, it's lots of landmines out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to take a stance on the specific legislation, but it's definitely like how media interacts with all of these other types of media out there that aren't necessarily journalism uh, is, 
always evolving and right. very yeah, difficult. Right. You know, it's it's going to be an important frontier yeah. in, in public policy, I think, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. With just a few minutes left, oh, yeah. um, I, I have to take advantage of the fact that we have a, a, a living, breathing uh, state local or a state uh, legislative reporter here. Okay. So <laughs> uh, this past session uh, yes. was one of the most impactful that I think we've ever seen yeah regardless of whether you think it was good or bad right yeah, right impact, yeah, exactly you can't can't argue with the impact <laughs> what, what what are your sort of bottom line reflections on on, on the uh, the legislative session that just passed i mean the democrats went in saying they were kind of surprised by the trifecta and that they said we're going to take advantage of this as they said at the end of session they had a house had a list of i think 30 things they wanted to do they did them all they sometimes in politics people are like well you gotta like no, don't want to risk risk too much too too much too fast they work more like strike while the iron is hot i think moving forward you know next year the battle is going to be for the house of representatives mm-hmm. narrow margins for democrats in there republicans really want to win that back to have more divided government again and i think it's going to be really a battle of um what got done and whether folks appreciate and feel mm-hmm. the impacts of that and agree with that mm-hmm. um, from their perspective and versus what it cost and the surplus. There's going to be a lot of talk about how the surplus was spent and how that will directly impact people's pocketbooks in lots of different ways, right? Everything from taxes to rebates to um, school, universal school lunch. That's something that impacts yeah. people's pocketbooks. It Parents are no longer does. paying for lunch. Uh, on the flip side, they didn't get income tax breaks. So right. that's going to be, I think, the real debate moving forward here. One final Quick question. Uh, it's Friday, so when uh, all our listeners go and go into a party, uh, what should uh, what should they be uh, what, should, what should they talk about so that they could be the the smartest person in the room? Oh well, I think one of them is the state fair. Of all course. the new foods, okay. yep. the pickle is the trend of the what state fair. What is that all about? Yeah, too, man. that's what everyone's talking about yeah. is the state fair. Um, but the other story, our kind of lead story today, is on some grumbling in the downtown and business community in particular in Minneapolis, over Target not calling mm-hmm. people back to work yet. It's kind of an interesting story because Target is the largest employer really sure. downtown. And so some others are, folks are getting kind of annoyed that they're not making their workers come back because it is uh, has an economic yeah, impact. It does. Um, so that's a good example of a, like a hyper-local story that has a bigger, you know, it's one company downtown, but it has a bigger impact on the whole Minneapolis economy, which has a bigger impact on the state and regional economy. Sure. We always like to give our, uh, our, our guests the, uh, the last word on, uh, on this show. So is there anything we, we missed that we didn't talk about you think should be addressed in, in, in a show about new media? I love that question. Um, <laughs> and I thought I had an answer for it. Um, you know, I would just watch, you know, we're experimenting continually with Instagram, with different platforms to reach young people. I mean, I think that's just going to be really key. It's like, how do you reach people? And at the end of the day, as if you have good content, you know, that's going to be hopefully king still for a long time. We just have to figure out how to deliver it and how to pay for it. I would encourage listeners to pay for the local news, support mm-hmm. the local news, mm-hmm. pay for news you use, and if, whether it's a membership for a radio station or donation or it's a subscription to a news. I get so many times emails from people who say, I'm so annoyed you linked to that story I really want to read in the Star Tribune, but I hit the paywall and I'm yeah. like, pay for a subscription. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not that You know, much, you can get yeah. a 99 cent whatever uh, first thing. So yeah, but then I guess my other bottom line would be uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter uh, just Google Axios Twin Cities. You can follow us on Instagram and again, free daily newsletter help you get smarter faster about news in the Twin Cities and beyond. And I'll endorse it because I'm a, a subscriber to uh, three of your newsletters. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Some of the yeah. national ones too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. great. They're great. I appreciate it. Well, Tori, thank you so much for making the trip down here. We, I, I, I it's it, 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 This is a fun show to do regardless. It's always a guest-driven show. When you folks make the, uh, the uh, effort to actually be in studio with us, we really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will also extend a, a huge thank you. This has been just great. Um, and to our listeners, if you didn't catch the program live remember you can pull up the whole podcast from each program on the kymn uh, website or uh, any of your favorite podcast services just look for the public policy this week logo and look for axios twin dash cities 
when you Google it. All right. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYM and radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, each Friday morning from uh, 10 to 11 a.m. Be sure to join us for next week's uh, edition oh, of I, Public Policy This Week. I left you hanging there because uh, Nathan Leaf and uh, Joe Moravchik are going to be addressing some Native American issues next week. Tori, Tori Van Hoot, thank you so much for being here. We do appreciate it. Folks, we will talk to you again next week. Have a great rest of your day and a superb weekend. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.